0: Do I see hatred and racism and homophobia as owned by religious groups? No, I don't. (laughs) There's (laughs) so much complexity in the world, and there's plenty of people who are ready to own hatred without having a religious basis for it. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I have a better answer for you than that.
1: (laughs) No, no, but I mean, uh, I think you have it. I think you have it. Uh, There there is, We should not approach any of those uh, organizations with a um, uh, kind of um, uh, closed mind. I mean, uh, there's diversity in all of them, and this should be considered. And and maybe they're just uh, a cross-section of the rest of the society. What do you think?
0: Uh, I absolutely, that's what I, yes, that's what I was saying. You said it in a nicely different way. They're a cross-section.
1: Hello and welcome. This is the March 2019 podcast of the American Journal of Public Health. In the special section, a multi-faith team of guest editors, led by Ellen Eidler, and comprising Anwar Khan, Jeff Levine, and Tyler Vanderveel, has assembled a set of articles illustrating how faith-based organizations have contributed to public health at the local, state, and global levels. In this podcast, we will further explore the complex relationships between faith based organizations and public health, and in particular discuss if the mission of public health is compatible with views expressed by some religious congregations that appear to contradict the fundamental principles of equity and health. My interviewees are Ellen Eidler that you already heard in the intro, Bill Faghi, Rob Pine, and Mimi Kaiser. I am Alfredo Morabia, the editor-in-chief of AJPH. We are February 5th, 2019. I'm reaching out now to Bill Faghi, a former director of the CDC and of the Carter Center, and now emeritus professor at Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University in Atlanta.
2: You've been director of CDC uh, for uh, many years, I think from 1977 to
3: 1983, right? That's
2: correct. And those were the years of the emerging uh, HIV epidemic, the first cases of AIDS, and when they finally identified the virus, right? That's correct, yes. Were Were they already uh, faced based
3: organizations then? Yes, faith-based organizations, and it becomes very complex because there's no single answer to how they responded. And in this country, I think that uh, the first response from many faith-based organizations was to provide additional stigma to uh, gay men, and uh, after some time, you saw a combined response of some congregations, some churches still having homophobia and making it very difficult for patients with AIDS, while others stepped up and began assisting. And the same pattern took place uh, overseas. And in Africa, there was great stigma at first from the churches. But then the faith-based organizations are the ones that really came to the rescue with orphans. And you found that Catholic, Protestant, Muslim, uh, religious groups are helping grandmothers who were raising the orphan children when the grandmothers lost their own children to AIDS. And so
2: in your experience... Uh I mean, and you talk about this in your editorial. Uh, there are some positive and negative influences of uh, faith-based organization public health. Which examples come to mind when, when you say this?
3: Well, working overseas, as I've done on different uh, occasions, uh, I see some real positives from faith-based groups. For example... Uh, it was the church groups that really took on the problem of leprosy before the governments, before the universities. And so some of these were based in the United States, the American Leprosy Mission. Uh, Some of them were based in other countries. For instance, in India, the dean of the medical school at Belor, uh, Dr. Cochran, became the world's real expert on leprosy, and he published the uh, the, uh, great textbook on leprosy. Paul Brand, a missionary, became the great leprosy surgeon. So a lot of the leprosy work was done by church groups rather than by government groups. And the church groups responded so well to orphans and others who were in real need. And then I look around at the countless hospital and clinic interventions of church groups, and these are very positive. These are very important things that happen. I became uh, very enamored with Schweitzer and what he did a 100 years ago in uh, Africa. But there were some negatives also. Uh, Church groups tend to have very certain beliefs. And Richard Feynman, the physicist, said, certainty is the Achilles heel of science and religion and politics. And so this rigidity of beliefs can often be a negative. I think it was a real negative that because of religious beliefs, many people in Africa did not use condoms, and therefore they became AIDS patients. I think it was a negative that uh, we set up hospitals and clinics in a way that inspires obligation on the part of the patient. And so, therefore, church groups often use medicine to proselytize for their own church group. And I see that as a negative. I think it's a negative that many of the church groups have a gender bias, that you can't become a priest or a minister which implies that there are two kinds of humans and that one kind, females, are not of the same grade as males. And I think that's a real negative. I think it was a negative that family planning has been hurt in so many countries by religious beliefs.
1: Thus, from a public health perspective, there are positives and negatives in faith-based organizations. But how have these different facets evolved historically? This is what I discussed with Rob Pine, who is Senior Director of Community Engagement and directs the Norman Miller Center for Peace, Justice, and Public Understanding at St. Norbert College in Pere, Wisconsin.
4: Many of these denominations and, and communities of faith have had public health missions. And this is kind of a strange thing that lots of of, uh, Christians in particular will be willing to do things internationally and to support things internationally that they don't necessarily support at home. So they might, uh, be supporting relief efforts and humanitarian efforts internationally that include health initiatives, but at home they're not necessarily supporting, uh, universal public or universal health care. And you think maybe about why that is and, and, um, uh, this is this is where the story turns a little bit darker I think that uh there there is among especially some conservative religious groups a mistrust in science that goes back to the early 20th century you know they were reacting against evolution and uh, they were reacting against um, uh, some of the some of the uh, initiatives of uh of social reform that seemed to them to violate uh their view of morality. And so they retreated, many of them, from public policy. And there's even a term for it. People speak about the great reversal that followed the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the U.S., mm-hmm. where the fundamentalists said they were going to focus on the spiritual things and not physical things. And they sometimes tied it to the Southern way of life because a lot of them were out of the South. And So they ended up on the wrong side of civil rights and the wrong side of anti-poverty campaigns. And they would do soup kitchens, but not focus on structural problems. Some of the uh, fundamentalists, uh, ones who later became known as evangelical, as those terms kind of uh, fuzzed together, Mm -hmm. those groups were asserting public morality as they understood it. And so they were opposing uh, issues of women's health in particular. They were Maintaining control over a, you know, system of, uh, patriarchal family order that regulated sexuality, regulated reproduction, that demonstrated uh, a real focus of, on control over women's bodies. And, and they had a mixed legacy then too, even with things like AIDS. You know, they were slow to the fight. And then in a sense, they fought with one hand tied because you think about even the Catholic Church where in their, AIDS initiatives, they weren't distributing condoms because they were opposed to birth control. Mm -hmm. And that's something that persisted up until just a few years ago. Driving a lot of the fundamentalist movements in terms of their social engagement is what they would call pro-life or what others would call anti-abortion. And so they're opposed as a result to stem cell research, um, for a long time many were opposed to in vitro and a- again these are are things that are are typically more restrictive when it comes to public health than um than helping
1: how can we uh identify you know faith based organization that some people say use public health to actually uh, disseminate their religious uh ideology versus those who are sincerely uh acting uh, for the health of the public first
4: yeah that's a that's a really good question and as i think about it you know there are some who who use their clout with regard to public policy and advocacy to campaign for a certain vision of morality and so they'll, for example, restrict international spending on healthcare programs that involve uh, a, a full spectrum of women's health. Um, they'll, uh, refuse to, to fund organizations that uh, provide or even recommend abortions. And when you're talking about uh, people working, especially in developing countries, you, you can't select out that kind of, uh, uh, healthcare and say that, that you're really advocating for the whole public good when you're not supporting certain kinds of things, you know? So, um, that to me becomes a problem. On the US side, there's been some concern about them uh, proselytizing in the context of these partnerships. And so, actually, again, under the Obama administration, they, they emphasized the division of church and state, and, and there were some really clear guidelines about no proselytizing, no religious requirements uh, for participation in services that were delivered through these faith-based organizations. And they mandated referrals. If, if somebody, uh, an individual in the community came and this is where they had access to some particular social service and they were uncomfortable with the faith connection, uh, they could ask for a referral to some, someplace else. And by government law, uh, by federal law, they were mandated to provide that referral. Um, The Trump administration actually did away with that. Uh, They did away with the necessity of referrals and uh, arguably making it easier for the religious organizations to proselytize or restrict services. And he said he did it in the name of religious freedom, but that's not the kind of religious freedom most of us want.
1: Professor Mimi Kaiser, who is director of the Interfaith Health Program with the Rollins School of Public Health at Emory University, is also the author of one of the papers in the special section describing a national network of public health and faith-based organizations to increase influenza prevention among hard-to-reach populations. I have asked her, what could be lost if we ignore faith-based organizations in public health practice? Can it be harmful if uh, public health um, people who start a campaign um, to promote a form of prevention or to fight an epidemic ignore religious organizations? I mean, what would be the... Most important consequence, according to you
5: well, in my experience with the two thousand and nine h one n one it it builds very directly from what we were just talking about in terms of trust um, and um, where there are reservoirs of mistrust if attention isn't um, given to the to those communities and isn't um, kind of proactively a part of communication um, strategies in public health, um, there there could be potential harm. One of the things that the religious community does well and where the greatest opportunities are is um, as a source of meaning and, and communication that has meaning through a religious lens and one of the things that i do in in the classes i teach at emory on on um religion and health are kind of navigating the religious frame around how you make a decision that benefits yourself but more importantly sometimes benefits the greater whole there are a lot of populations that that don't have direct access to the services of public health um either in communication or in actual service delivery. And the, the religious community often in a lot of their, you know, human services, social services, food banks, you know, housing, uh, homeless housing efforts and stuff um, reach an elderly and, and, and maybe disabled person's Often have these kind of tentacle reaches of relationships and connectivity to populations that are that are harder for public health agencies and structures to reach. So, um, so I I think, yeah. While religion, you know, is diminishing somewhat in importance in the the social fabric of the U.S., I I still think they have uh, a particular. Role to play in, um, in reach and, and meaning making and being a kind of brokers of trust and care and support.
1: There remains an uneasiness among, if I may say, secular. Public health individuals and organizations with respect to faith based organizations because of the many instances in which religious beliefs clash with scientific knowledge. I have asked the question directly to Ellen Eidler, who is Director of Religion and Public Health Collaborative in the Department of Sociology and Epidemiology at Emory University. And who was also the leader of the team of guest editors who prepared the special section in this March issue of AJPH? Why is it that uh, we have essentially here of, uh, you know, the the cases of uh, discrimination, stigmatization, uh, fight against uh, women's rights, LGBTQ rights, etc., from certain uh, faith-based organization, religious congregations?
0: Um, well, do I see that as the majority of religious groups and faith organizations? No, I don't. These religious congregations are actually physical places in communities. They aren't just ideas or social groups that sort of exist in an ether. They are physical facilities. And there are so many examples in the, for example, the Faithful Families article that um about North Carolina um, talked about how churches opened up their playgrounds and their basketball courts to community groups to come in and improve physical exercise opportunities. Um they talked about land on in these, you know, on the properties that could be used to grow vegetables for people in the community and even for local food banks. Um there's an organization called the Interfaith Housing Network that I'm familiar with. It's here in Atlanta, also up in the Northeast, uh, that houses the homeless. They work with local social welfare government agencies to provide housing for homeless women and children during the week. And uh, small churches band together, and they take a week at a time. So people in the church bring food. They set it up so that they can stay there during the evenings. Um, and there are always shelters in natural disasters. These facilities are there for people, for places of safety. Um, and they have kitchens, and they are places where you can run a flu shot drive, uh, as one of the other articles was about. So so I think that the the idea of a physical space that is able to really provide services and, uh, and has people in it who are pretty organized <laughs> um, to deliver those services is a really important part of what it means to be in a community. I mean, I I think the story of the Ebola crisis that one of the articles in the special issue focuses on is a really good example of how religious practices were problematic for public health. Uh, The traditional burial practices of Muslims and Christians in West Africa involved very close and intimate contact with the deceased. And um, studies showed that uh, it was the contact with the deceased that, spread the disease more rapidly than any other kind of contact. Um, but but Muslim and Christian clergy played an incredibly important role in disseminating the safe and dignified burial practices that were developed um, by the World Health Organization, CDC, and a number of faith-based net, uh, NGOs. Uh, mm-hmm. And so there was uh, a sort of <laughs> first a problem and then a solution that came only from a partnership. I I think that's really important to underscore the name of those practices because they were first called, as I understand it, um, the World Health Organization delivered uh, messages for safe burial practices that spoke about religious groups as sort of, you know, like the problems or the people who needed to get this message. Um, But with the input of faith-based organizations, there was a a, a movement to call it safe and dignified burial practices. And the dignity came from the understanding of the importance of honoring the dead, Uh, honoring the dead through the traditional religious practices uh, of of the shrouds and the rituals and the things that went along with it. And by including them in a safe way, um, these, these guidelines then started taking hold.
1: And so, would you say that, um, for these reasons that you just explained, uh, faith based organizations were more effective than, uh, uh, if they had been, um, secular community based organizations?
0: Oh, <laughs> profoundly, yes. <laughs> Unquestionably.
1: But how do you recognize a, what, we may call an open-minded faith-based organization from a more fundamentalist one.
0: Well, um, I guess. I mean, I think that's a good question. Uh, a fundamentalist one. I, I'm. I'm. You know, there's a diff- different meanings that we could take from that. Uh, do I think that faith-based organizations? main motive is to proselytize and convert people to their religion by providing them with some sort of health public health uh practices or Mm -hmm. promotion or programs i really don't think that's true at all and i i guess my evidence for that would be the fact that so many of these organizations are interfaith organizations so in Sierra Leone, for example, they are, but um, many of the organizations I'm familiar with here in the United States are, are interfaith. So they are people working across sectors. And so they're, <laughs> they're, they probably wouldn't be doing themselves a favor of converting people to their own faith if they were working so well across uh, with other faiths uh, on these projects.
1: All right, at the end of these interviews, it appears that historically, faith-based organizations can play a negative or a positive role in promoting the health of populations. Take vaccines. Faith-based organization play a negative role when they fight for hospital workers to be exempted from being immunized against the flu for religious reasons. They put patients at risk of being infected by their healthcare providers. On the other hand, some faith-based organizations are working to promote vaccines in vulnerable, hard-to-reach populations which would not be vaccinated otherwise. Similar examples can be found in relation to women's rights, to the HIV epidemic, or to the discrimination against the LGBT community. Overall, we come to the realization that faith-based organizations are as diverse as the society at large, even within specific congregations, and they should not be stigmatized as a whole as unfit for public health. Actually, if properly recognized, faith-based organizations, in particular in interfaith coalitions, can contribute to promote health and equity in their own unique way. I'm grateful to all my interviewees for their time and willingness to share their ideas. I also thank Emily D'Agostino for assisting me with the production of the podcast. Thank you also to Michael Costanza for comments and edits on an earlier version of the podcast. The music of this month's podcast features the great jazz singer Alicia Olatuja. The French actress and singer, Irène Jacob and the harmonicist legend, Grégoire Marais on the song, Jihad and Crusada composed by Irène and Francis Jacob. This is Alfredo Morabia at AJPH. For more podcasts, including podcasts in Chinese and Spanish, visit us at ajph.org or subscribe to it on Android or iPhone podcast app, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, or on any other podcast app. That's it. Thank you for listening.